Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 104 for the week ending, May 25, 2018, the We're Number One edition. First, a word about our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as a corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 600 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitor. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitor, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. With the Complete Compliance Handbook sitting at the top of the rankings at Amazon.com under the category of Business and Ethics, For the first week of its sales, Jay Rosen and myself take a look at some of the top compliance stories over the past week. May 25, 2018, GDPR GDPR has gone live. Are you ready? We review the highlights, uh, our highlights from Compliance Week 2018, which recently concluded. The SFO brings new charges in the Unioil matter, and the DOJ brings new charges in the Rolls-Royce case. We consider Matt Kelly's look at the new flattening of organizations and what that might mean for compliance. We consider that PMEX now requires its contractors to have compliance programs. We take a look at the use of behavioral science in compliance through an article by Ben DiPietro in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, and then take a look at an article which reviews the now 15-month history of the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. We conclude by talking about the uh, uh, Rockets and Celtics, both up 3-2, going to the away team's uh, gymnasium for a critical game six and what it may mean. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and the author of the Complete Compliance Handbook. And I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 104 for the week ending, May 25, 2018, the We're Number One edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, and we will bring you some of the week's top ethics and compliance stories. So, Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It was uh, great seeing you uh, only for a little bit in D.C., so um, we had some time together, and uh I look forward to running through the week's big events on ethics and compliance in FCPA. And number one with a bullet, it's been public, it was publication day for the complete compliance handbook written by our compliance evangelist himself, Tom Fox. And we have some very nice, uh, words and reviews that came from, uh, Dick Casson at the FCPA blog, Matt Kelly. Uh, at Radical Compliance and Mike Volkoff. And um, I'll just read a couple blurbs, but we um, hope everyone will have an opportunity to look at your work. Um, basically, this is uh, over 500 pages of things that you've been talking about over the last several years. And chief amongst it is a step-by-step guide to design, creation, implementation, or enhancement of your compliance 
program. Uh, you start off with a chapter on 31 days to better compliance program. And then after that, you devote individual sections to the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. And, um, you know, I, I, the, the hope of this is that for compliance practitioners, whether you've been in the business for a while or whether you're just starting out, that this will be a nuts and bolts guide that you will refer to uh, quite often. And um, Matt also did a really nice podcast with you that's uh, about nine minutes long. And one of the points that you made that you that I really enjoyed is um, Matt was asking you about, you know, how you're able to uh, relate different political things, sports things, uh, looking at the Michael Cohen case and how you can relate those back to ethics and compliance. And you told Matt, for me, at the end of the day, as much as compliance is a business process, it's about the people. Once you realize compliance is about people, you'll see examples about people everywhere. So, um, Tom, congratulations on your book and anything else you'd like to add? So, um, I'm really happy with the results, Jay. Uh, I am number one in new releases in business ethics for Amazon.com, so very gratified by that. Got to sign a bunch of copies at Compliance Week uh, for persons who purchased the book. I can still autograph a copy uh, for you if you'd like. It's available through my website. Otherwise, go to Amazon.com. But it was really a, a kind of a a journey of learning for me, Jay, and I spent 13 months writing it. I did a lot of research, read as much as I could, and got to talk to uh, some of the top compliance and ethics practitioners and a lot of other folks around who have uh, ideas, thoughts, products, and services all in the compliance space. So it was a, it was a great journey and uh, really um, uh, gratified that I can finally uh, get it published and uh, have it available. So uh, thank you for the kind words. You're welcome. So uh, besides being number one on the Amazon list day, uh, today is also May 25th, 2018. And as our colleague uh, Jonathan Armstrong has been talking about for the last year and a half, uh, GDP is live. And uh, what do you, have you heard anything uh, hitting the news, Tom? Or what are your thoughts on how people should be uh, preparing and what they should have uh, done by day one? Well, Jay, I don't know what your experience has been over the past 48 hours, but I think I've received about 3 million emails uh, asking me to either opt in or telling me that I, by reading this email, I've agreed to a new data privacy policy by someone I'm on an email list from. So um, my hope is that uh, uh, the day after Memorial Day, Tuesday, May 29, that will end. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I think lots of companies obviously are waking up to uh, to this law. You're right about Jonathan's been talking about it for 18 months. Um, what I guess my biggest concern, Jay, is that um, the regulators will be uh, inflexible on this and also that they will aggressively pursue U.S. companies that I think they've got several very large U.S. companies in their sites, Google, Amazon, Facebook. Um, and then uh, they view this as uh, maybe payback for the U.S. going after European banks for violating Iranian sanctions over the past 10 years or so. And the other uh, large fines that uh, the U.S. has put on international banks. And, of course, 
we've got a president who's threatening secondary sanctions on, on European commercial entities um, over this, uh, his cancellation of the Iranian uh, treaty. So um, this is a very powerful set of regulations and uh, lots of different ways companies could stumble. Uh, Facebook is currently under investigation uh, for their Cambridge Analytica imbroglio, and the um, regulators may take a very dim view of of uh, people who don't follow the law going forward. There's a couple of other wrinkles that are not available under U.S. data privacy law, which are uh, class actions. So potentially we could start to see lots of class actions for from individuals who file subject access requests and rights right to be forgotten, rights to be forgotten letters, and U.S. companies do not respond on a timely basis. Uh, they do what they do here in the United States, which is uh, either say nothing or say as absolute little as possible. And, of course, data breaches. Now they have to report data breach within 72 hours to an appropriate regulator in the uh, United Kingdom. You still do not have to report in the U.S., but uh, imagine the situation, Jay, of a multinational large company, a multi-billion dollar Fortune 100, 500, or 5 company has a data breach, reports in Europe, but doesn't report in the United States and the outcry uh, over that. So uh, lots to uh, still digest. Uh, Jonathan, uh, our colleague Jonathan Armstrong, sent me today a new UK uh, data protection, data privacy law, uh, which they've passed in the wake of Brexit, uh, as they will no longer be part of the EU going forward. So there'll be yet another uh, regulatory scheme because of uh, the Brexit. So uh, we put a lot of resources in uh, the today's podcast show notes. Uh, I had a, a summary blog post today. I've got an extensive white paper that's available on Corporate Compliance Insights. And over the past several months, Jonathan Armstrong and I have done a podcast series of Countdown to GDPR, and we've got all of those uh, episodes listed uh, on the show notes. So uh, take a look. If you uh, haven't really looked at this yet or you need to start looking at it, uh, you need to start looking at this now, but there's lots of resources. Uh, quarterly Compliance is literally the one of the best resources across the globe on this issue. They got a ton and a half of stuff on their uh, website. They have something called the uh, GDPR Navigator. They've got some great frequently asked questions that I rely on for answers. So lots of resources available to you. And uh, I guess my last suggestion would be call Jonathan Armstrong. Get him on retainer now. I would second that one. And uh, Tom, as I inferred at the beginning of the uh, podcast. We were together at Compliance Week in D.C. Unfortunately, I had to uh, jump out a little bit early to help my family move, but uh, what are your thoughts on the the whole conference? Then I'll chime in with some bits as well. So it's really interesting, Jay. Every conference has its own personality, its own feel. Uh, It's really difficult to say one is better than another. Uh, Certainly, some presentations stand out over the years. But I thought this this conference was just outstanding in every way. Um, the uh, opening or Sunday, we had a couple of workshops. You attended one that was led by Mary Shirley. And uh, we had a great, um, great cocktail hour setting off uh, the tone for Sunday. Lots of people showed up. Lots of vendors were showing. 
during the cocktail hour. So typically you don't get to, to visit with vendors. Uh, so I thought that was great. And then right out of the box Monday, we had Rod Rosenstein, deputy attorney general, uh, with his entourage, but, uh, you know, he gave a great speech and, uh, what did he do after he had a speech? Well, he just tooled on over to the white house for a short little meeting that you never would have known it watching him, but he had some great words for the compliance profession, the compliance practitioner and the compliance programs, uh, around, uh, corporate culture and uh, the robustness and the need for a robust compliance program, the anti-piling on statute. We had some great presentations Monday. I got to have a book signing, so that was a big deal for me. Um, the uh, cocktail party was great. Uh, closing uh, keynote on Monday afternoon, where we had the, the top minds, Compliance Week's top minds awardees uh, were there. Started off again Tuesday, Lewis Sapperman and I had a great presentation on uh, various hallmarks and frameworks, rather, for uh, compliance programs. I had a panel, uh, chaired another panel on ERM risk management, Katie uh, Lickup and uh, Tony uh, 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 Toko. Uh, the uh, presentations uh, continued into Wednesday morning. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, some of the presentations. Scott Lane uh, led a great panel on really um, uh, cutting edge compliance programs. Uh, so lots of good stuff, lots of great panels, uh, some new vendors that I had not seen. Always good to have some new vendors. Uh, we had some from outside the, the traditional anti-corruption compliance space. So I thought that uh, always brings in some new ideas. And some of the uh, um, uh, usual suspects were there. Uh, certainly uh, uh, NAVX, Thompson Reuters, Red Flag Group, uh, several others in the main hall. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. I uh, really thought it was uh, excellent. Uh, got to participate in some great panels. Got to witness some great panels. Um, the uh, end of the second day was probably the most poignant for me, Jay, when Marie Sonnen um, was, uh, this was her last conference, she's moving on, going in-house with BAE, and uh, the new editor-in-chief of Compliance Week, Dave LaFort, uh, presented her with a huge bouquet of roses and, in what I thought was a fabulous gesture, a lifetime pass to Compliance Week. So uh, sad to see Maria go, but uh, she's been great. And uh, once again, a great conference. The staff took care of, of everything. I thought it was uh, seamless. The um, electronic check-in was great. I lost, or rather misplaced, my badge at one point. Uh, and in a panic, I said, oh, well, here, hit the, uh, you know, enter your name and hit the reprint badge button. So they were obviously ready for somebody like me. Um, got a very cool shirt, got a very cool umbrella. Uh, so, uh, it was just kind of my thoughts. And, and once again, you know, great conversations in those rooms, around those rooms, on the breaks, uh, lots of people, uh, talking about compliance, lots of good and new ideas. I know you were talking to a lot of people. We got to have a great cigar at Shelly's uh, Cigar Bar with Jim Moore. Always great to catch up with Jim. Got to catch up with Ren McEachern. I uh, had some words with Richard Bestrong. So it was a, a, a great, you know, kind of uh, the fraternity got back together. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. A um, couple other panels that I thought were really useful. Um, one was called You Can't Delegate Ethics, and that was moderated by Carrie Penman from Navix. And on the panel were uh, Kelly Clark, Chief Ethics Officer for the Holland American Group. They uh, own several different cruise ship lines. Kathleen Flanagan, President and CEO of ABT Associates, and Jeffrey Colleen, Chief Compliance Officer from Bumblebee Seafoods. 
another session that I really liked um, was called Best Practices, Ensuring Your Compliance Chain is Built to Last. And that was by Amy Barnard Bond and Patrick Day, um, who's a director of compliance and policy at GSK. And, um, you know, what they really talked about was, you know, how do you actually lead change and how do you get people to stop doing things the old way and get them to do new things in the, uh, the way that needs to be done going forward from an ethics and compliance perspective. So uh, both uh, Amy and Patrick were really passionate about their presentation. And the last one I want to note was uh, best practices session and practical tools for program assessments, and this was led um, by Ellen Hunt, who's the uh, SVP Audit Ethics and Compliance at AARP, and Barbara Petiti, Ethics and Compliance Officer for Alstom. So, you know, to echo your sentiments there, there, there are just so many great thought leaders, and to have everybody there in the same place. And one other part I liked about this conference is that you know, you have a, a keynote in the morning, you break up, you do some sessions, but you come back together as a whole. So I think there's that nice rhythm that you go out on your tracks and then you come back together and you can bring everything uh, back home. So uh, next thing we have is the SFO uh, is been busy again. And uh, on Tuesday, they brought more charges against two individuals who are already part of uh, the Una Oil investigation. Uh, here come some butchered names, Basil A. Jara and Ziad Akle. They were both charged with conspiracy to give corrupt payments. The payments were intended to secure the award of a contract worth $733 million to Leighton Contractors Singapore. Uh, the contract for a project was to build two oil pipelines in Iraq. So, um, once again, Unit Oil proves uh, fruitful, and the SFO is uh, pursuing these matters as we speak. Uh, Matt Kelly, oh, actually, I'm sorry, and um, we also have another article of that that we'll refer to in our show notes from uh, Mara Lima Stein uh, over at the um, Wall Street Journal. Uh, Matt Kelly's been thinking about... Uh, compliance while cutting middle market management. And he had a piece uh, that uh, I'm teeing you up for. So what was that saying, Tom? So uh, if you don't read Radical Compliance, the, the minute you finish with this podcast, I hope you go to his site because Matt Kelly always has some great stuff and he does lots of research um, and uh, looks at numbers and looks at things that uh, are not really legal or lawyer focused. Uh, as would be befitting from a business journalist. And he wrote a really interesting piece this week entitled Compliance While Cutting Middle Management. And he, and he teed it up by looking at uh, starting with Elon Musk's uh, attempts to, uh, or not attempts, but his uh, flattening of his management team by cutting out a middle management row. And Matt asked, uh, what does that business issue mean for compliance? And he had several different points. Uh, the first is that culture is much more important when you uh, cut out middle managers who are overseeing and really emphasizing and enforcing culture uh, to where it's lower level folks. They really need to understand the culture of our companies to do business ethically and in compliance. Uh, it'll goes, it couples with operationalization of compliance uh, as well. 
he uh, then notes that it can actually make it more difficult to speak up uh, and have a speak up culture because you don't know when or who to uh, talk to. That makes uh, reporting lines even more critical. Uh, Interestingly, he says that um, uh, when you move, and, and I would have to agree with this, that when you move compliance really into the front lines, you have to have robust internal controls, that those are the guardrails which uh, keep everybody in the middle of the road or at least from veering off the road completely. So uh, a really interesting series of questions to think about. I had thought about that really from a different perspective, Jay, and starting in 2014 when uh, the uh, price fall dropped dramatically and energy companies really had to cut back uh, because of the slump in energy prices. But this is a different, uh, although his title is cutting middle management, it's really not a layoff cut, Jay. It's more of a, a different management strategy or management style by cutting, flattening your organization by getting rid of middle management. So uh, as management theories go in and out of vogue, I think uh, compliance programs need to have the flexibility and the robustness to respond to that. And it was really uh, interesting the way Matt uh, teed that up with the Elon Musk and Tesla situation uh, and the moves that Musk is making around flattening his management and thinking about what does it really mean uh, for compliance. Uh, Jay, now we had uh, literally uh, in breaking news today, uh, Dick Casson uh, told us that the Department of Justice has charged two more in the Rolls-Royce bribery case. You want to tell us about that? Sure. So um, the two people have been charged. One of them is Arzat Maritrosian, 62, a citizen of Armenia, who was formerly served as the country's ambassador to China. And Vitaly Leshkov, 50, a Russian citizen, um, and they both faced one count of conspiracy to launder money and 10 counts of money laundering. Uh, they're both believed to be living outside the U.S. Um, Thursday's superseding indictment included FCPA charges also against Petros Contagoras, a Greek citizen living in Turkey. And um, basically what happened was in January of 2017, Rolls-Royce paid a U.S. criminal fine of $170 million as part of the $800 million global settlement. At that time, DOJ charged Rolls-Royce with a conspiracy to violate the FCPA, and the company entered into a deferred prosecution agreement. Thursday's charges against the three involved bribes to a Kazakh official to win 145 million contract to supply equipment and services for a guide for a gas pipeline. So uh, this also involves a U.S. entity. The contract was run won by Rolls-Royce Energy Systems, a Columbus, Ohio subsidiary for Rolls-Royce. So uh, unfortunately, uh, they appear to be back in the news and uh, are taking their place as recidivists. So, uh, next up, we have... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Did you want to say something, Tom? No, no, go ahead. Okay, so I was going to say uh, next up is a oil services company that is always near and dear to our heart. What is happening at Pemex? So, Jay, uh, Pemex now requires compliance programs for contractors. And uh, this is obviously a, a really significant development for uh, the country of Mexico, for uh, North and South America, and uh, compliance programs generally. And uh, companies now have to have a compliance program in place, and the um, 
you can't do business with PMEX uh, without a compliance program. So um, it really tied in, though, Jay, to something that Lewis Sapperman said in our presentation at Compliance Week. And he said that five years ago, having a compliance program, even a best practices compliance program was a real market differentiator. It really made you stand out from your competitors in the market. Well, now having a compliance program is table stakes. You've got to have a compliance program just to get into the game. And uh, if you want to do business with literally the only oil company in Mexico, uh, this is what it's going to require. So most U.S. companies are going to have uh, these programs in place because they um, are subject to the FCPA. But now we've got uh, the contract, rather the owner, uh, the contractor here, Pemex, requiring that of its contractors or the company. So I think uh, this is really what we've seen that the business solution to legal problem of uh, corruption and bribery is compliance. And this is one more example of the businesses here, Pemex, putting in place a solution, the requirement for every company to have a best practices or at least a compliance program. So, uh, and they will have the right to audit this, have a right to look at it, consider the robustness of it. So uh, I thought a, a pretty important um, change in policy by Pemex. So uh, if you do business in Mexico, if you want to do business in Mexico, you're going to have to have a compliance program in place. Yeah, and, and this is uh, really, I think, noteworthy because these are things that you've been speaking about for a long time and uh, other commentators, too, by saying that that risk is really there with your third-party competitors. And not only do you need to hold them uh, accountable to your ethics and compliance program, but you also need to have audit rights. And, and one of your favorite things borrowed from President Reagan, you also trust, but you have to verify. And this really gives you the teeth to do so. So, Jay, uh, so Nick? Yeah, we had one last uh, article, uh, or uh, which was a blog post on the SCCE blog by Sasha Matuzak. And she, uh, I thought, in a very interesting uh Post took a look at the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which was released in February 2017, and taking a look at it from uh, really one year's perspective. And I thought it was a very good uh, review summary of the uh, evaluation, and it really drove home, Jay, how important the evaluation has become for uh, literally every company, every compliance practitioner, and every compliance program, because it lays out a way for you to think through your program. Uh, Wei Chin has said it's not a checklist, and I agree with her wholeheartedly, but it's also, it's, a, it's really important for you to use as a self-assessment for your own program, because these are questions the Department of Justice would ask if you were in front of them in an enforcement action. So uh, when Wei Chin says, I hope it gets people to think about their program, I think it's done exactly that. And uh, I applauded uh, Andrew Wiseman, who uh, released it last year. Um, and uh, certainly applaud it. Uh, continued use today. I incorporated it into uh, my book because I thought it was so important. But most importantly, it gave us some real insight into how the DOJ is thinking on best practices compliance programs. So I'd like to hit you with an unprepared question. Uh, when we did see Wei speak at the conference, and she was on that panel, 
somebody asked her, if you were going to be putting together an ethics and compliance organization within your company, who would you have on that list? And she mentioned that you might want to have technologists, you might want to have HR people, you might want to have people from many different parts of the organization, but she was less than sanguine about having somebody from the legal ops on that team. Your thoughts on her comments? Well, actually, Jay, that ties into uh, one of our articles I wanted to raise with you, which is uh, Ben DiPietro reported in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal about uh, nudging in compliance. And uh, so before I answer that question, why don't you tell us what nudging in compliance is? Sure. So uh, this is a, a concept uh, First of all, Ben starts speaking with um, some folks from Eli Lilly, and basically um, they're looking at how to influence people who make ethics and compliance decisions by, quote, nudging them, unquote, or by using choice architecture, which is a way to promote ethical behavior among employees. Nudges are one of these uh, ways businesses are, are deflo- deploying behavioral ethics to re- reaffirm values and keep employees focused. So the way I would kind of look at it is almost like a just-in-time ethical message. If you are getting ready, uh, you're either going to a foreign country or coming back and it's time to do your TEE, you might get a little uh, a, a little nudge saying, uh, when doing your uh, expense report, remember to keep things in the proper category. So the idea is to keep a topic in front of as many people as, as they can. And with they know from research that when people have this kind of messaging in front of them, they're more likely to make the right decisions. So um, now let me, so uh, let me really see if I can the, use that uh, intro to answer um, your question, Jay. Which is uh, sure. the thing I got out of the article was nudging is is a part of behavioral science, and it's using behavioral science to impact employees or patients, excuse me, or uh, or people's behavior. And Wei Chen said I would have a behavioral scientist on, and she had several other disciplines. She said I'd have a data scientist. I'd certainly have some IT people. I'd have some uh, HR focused people. I'd have some people who knew how to read a spreadsheet. You're right. She said I would not have a lawyer. But, uh, and I might disagree with that, uh, certainly legal training is helpful, but it really speaks to the much broader remit of compliance now and what goes into a best practices compliance program. Uh, I think she even said I'd have a marketing or a comms person, uh, and that's certainly a part of compliance. How do you communicate with your customers who are your employees? How do you data mine uh, the, the data that's in your company uh, to get insights around your compliance program. What does all of that mean? How can you use some of the things that Ben uh, wrote about here within the compliance space? Does behavioral science uh, really help people uh, do business uh, more ethically and in compliance? So uh, when she answered that question, I think uh, many people's reaction was similar to the question you posed to me, Jay, a little bit, uh, if not perplexed, questioning of uh, why she she would have that list of people. But I think Ben's article really points, and, and your uh, recitation of it, really points to uh, where compliance is going and why it is going in that direction. Uh, because uh, it, it really ties even back to uh, the thing you cited uh, in my interview with Matt Kelly. Why do I bring in uh, obituaries, sports stories, uh, rock and roll albums, concerts, 
uh, Sherlock Holmes, um, King Arthur. Why do I bring all of those into my blog? It's because compliance at the end of the day is about people. And uh, I think that's what Wei Chen was saying uh, in a very different uh, format. Uh, and I think that's what Ben is saying, that it's, it's not about a law, not the FCPA. It, it is about a business process, but that process is impacting people. So I really found uh, your question uh, tied really directly into to what Ben reported on and, and where we may see uh, several iterations of compliance go down the road, Jay. Well, there certainly is a synchronicity, and now we have a potential uh, Boston-Houston matchup if things go well. What are your thoughts on uh, the Rockets' chance of uh, beating Golden State? Well, uh, as I was coming to the studio to record today's podcast, I heard the breaking news that Chris Paul is out for Game 6. So he's obviously uh, injured his hamstring uh, that they don't think they can fix in a couple of days. And uh, I think it'll be uh, even more difficult uh, to beat Golden State in Oakland without Chris Paul. Uh, that means probably a game seven. But uh, the Rockets certainly did themselves proud last night. They uh, took the lead three to two, going back out to California, potentially can close it out. Although I will say it may be, much tougher now without uh, without Mr. Paul joining them. But, um, you know, the Celtics are up 3-2 heading to Cleveland. I think we're going to seven games in both conference finals. Um, I don't know what, what your thoughts might be, but uh, uh, Houston certainly, uh, it's been a while, I guess 35 years since we met up with the Celtics the last time and got, uh, got our tails handed to us. But uh, we did meet the Boston Red Sox in the AAL playoffs last year. And uh, as I recall, the uh, tables were somewhat turned in Houston's favor. So uh, we may we have something to talk about going forward. Well, it, it's always nice when we have a little Boston-Houston action. So uh, let's see how that goes. Um, also, yesterday we released um, – our latest Everything Compliance podcast with uh, Mike Volkov, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, uh, Tom Fox, and myself. And our topic, which was uh, very much in the news a couple weeks ago, was uh, what's happening with Mr. Cohen and all the money that's flowing into his essential consulting um, bank account. Uh, anything, uh, how's the podcast doing, Tom? Uh, or have, do we have any initial numbers? So I don't have uh, any initial numbers. It um, usually takes uh, a couple of days to, to get some, but uh, the, uh, the topic uh, uh, has really drawn a lot of interest. So I think we're going to find uh, a lot of people um, enjoying that podcast, which, Jay, we did on a, um, a Q&A rather than a topical basis as we normally do where everybody w takes one topic. But uh, lots of going on there. Uh, it's been uh, a little bit quiet for the past couple of days. So when you have uh, more than 48 hours with no news, it's uh, kind of interesting in the Trump uh, news cycle. Uh, I guess he had some other things going on. But um, uh, lots, uh, lots to talk about. So uh, you got anything uh, upcoming uh, from affiliated monitors or the Jay Rosen uh, travels? Uh, well, we know um, next week, actually the first week in uh, June, we're going to start a new series um, about suspension and debarment. Uh, 
and one of our colleagues, Rod Grandin from uh, D.C., formerly a suspension and debarment uh, officer at the United States Air Force, will be uh, commencing a, a five-part podcast with you. So that will drop uh, not next week, but the, the week after Memorial Day. So uh, I think this is something that a lot of people uh, really could get some use out of. It's, it's not a really well-discussed uh, subject. And uh, Rod is uh, one of the people who really knows how the subject matter works. So I uh, encourage you to look out for that. And uh, that's about it. The, the Rosens are unpacking boxes and, and enjoying their new house. And uh, as you know, Rebecca would like to be unpacked in uh, 48 hours. So we were, uh, we were on, uh, uh, on that time schedule and she was cracking whip. Well, good to know. Well, you want to take us home from the new <laughs> digs? Sure. So, um, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, we'd like to thank you for listening to This Week in FCPA, episode number four, number 104, the, the We're Number One episode. Thank you for joining us and uh, giving a listen to all things compliance and ethics and FCPA. And we hope you have a safe and wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this episode on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only compliance and ethics weekly wrap-up. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join us again next week where we talk about all of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.